Everything here at Keyboard Kimura is presented by OneBone, the first size-inclusive, big and tall brand. If you've been rocking with me for a while, you know I've been rocking with OneBone for a little bit now, and there are a bunch of reasons why. In addition to the fact that I straight up love their gear, from the different styles of pants and shorts, to the shirt varieties, hoodies, zips, the hot sauce, the whole collection, I'm in. But it's also because they understand that size doesn't matter, fit does. I'm a bigger guy and I carry it all in my belly, which meant for me, finding shirts that were long enough to not be revealing when I raised my arms or that kept me covered if I had to crouch down to pick something up was a challenge, but One Bone solved that. All the tops have added length to cover the gap between your shirt and your pants and everything is made from premium fabrics with tops ranging in size from medium to 8XL and bottoms going from a waist size of 30 to 65 inches. There is a sizing guide on the website that makes it easy to find the absolute right fit. And from flyweight to heavyweight and beyond, One Bone has got you covered. They offer free exchanges and returns to guarantee your perfect fit. And you can even buy now and pay later with four interest-free payments. On top of that, they're Canadian. And for me, that's important. As a One Bone ambassador, I've got you covered with a one-time promo code for 15% off your entire order. All you have to do is visit the link in the show notes, onebonebrand.com forward slash Spencer Kite, and enter the promo code Spencer Kite. That's my name, Spencer Kite, all caps, all one word, at checkout, and you get 15% off your entire order. It is, as I said, a one-time use code. But I'm confident that once you cop some One Bone gear and become part of the One Bone family yourself, you'll understand why my entire wardrobe consists of One Bone apparel. Go check out Drop 17, which hit the site a couple of days ago, featuring four new colors in the scoop and the V-neck t-shirts, plus the new Outwork pants in military green and black. I've got an order going in this week. You should too. One Bone, for big and all. Greetings and salutations. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. I am E. Spencer Kite, your friendly neighborhood Spencer man. This is the Keyboard Kimura Podcast, episode 36, going in video, and it is the return of the young king. After many, many months of us just talking privately, we have dragged Lord Harry Powell back to the show for a conversation. Good, sir. It has been too long. You know him from Severe MMA. You know him from The Balance Breakdown from Speaker's Corner, from the Severe Spotlight every Monday following a UFC event. Follow him at BJJ underscore Harry Powell. My good friend, it is good to see you. I'm excited for this. I back. Hi back. You back. I back. I back. Yeah. Hello, sir. How's it going? It's going well, and it's, it's quite fitting that you say I back, because the topic today, the thing you and I were kicking about last week as we were talking about UFC 293 and Israel Adesanya was what's next for him. If he wins this fight, what do we see the future being? We got talking about 
champions and greatness and how we define it, how we talk about it. You mentioned I back, of course, Anderson Silva, one of those great champions. Mm -hmm. So I will start us off here. We were talking about Izzy last week and it was what more is there for him to do? What do you think the future is going to be? And I think we both agreed at there's not really a lot. He doesn't seem like a guy that was really going to make a move up to another division and move to light heavyweight full time. Didn't seem like a thing he was that interested in. And so he was going to stick at middleweight in theory, continue to defend the title a couple more times and just that be his career. Previously, previous generations, previous eras in the UFC, that was that was really respected. That was really appreciated. That was really valued. And it seems like now that's not enough. So for you, when did the shift happen? And what are your thoughts on that shift? It's probably easier to answer the second question than it is the first. Um, and it's very interesting to have this conversation now today after Isla de Sonia loses the title to Sean Strickland. Um, what are my thoughts on it? Well, my thoughts on it are that it's a mirror image of what society expects more globally. And we have allowed that to proliferate through into sport. And I think MMA is a, is a strange, uh, dichotomy in the, in other sports, there's generally only one thing to win, you know? There's like one highest accolade. And if you win it, amazing, you've won it, fair play to you. That's an amazing season or a run or a, you know, series or whatever the, whatever the fucking right. verbiage is that, that, you, that you people use for your sporting things. Um, very rarely are we then chomping at the bit to say, well, that's not good enough you need to do X or Y. Very rarely, if you look at an NFL season, let's say, if somebody goes and, and wins the Super Bowl, you're not saying, well, they need to do it by a wider margin or they need to do it and they have no points scored on them entirely. In a football season, you may not turn around and say, well, they didn't do it undefeated, so they're clearly fucking useless. Um, whereas in MMA it feels as though there is a level of hmm, what's the right word here we want it's, style points we, we want, want domination we want it to be by the widest margin and the most impressive possible at all times yeah i think it goes a level deeper than that right like i think to me it's because of this there's such a when you watch elite level football, both either NFL, basketball, whatever it is. When you watch elite level sports, I think there is an intrinsic understanding that one is not capable of those feats, right? Right. Um, you go and you look at LeBron James or Kobe Bryant, or you go and look at Steph Curry, or you go and look at any of these amazing names. And in your brain, you understand, oh, I can't, I can't do that. Right. Like right. I'm not six, nine, or I don't have these athletic abilities or whatever, whatever. There is something that is so intrinsic to fighting that people believe that in certain situations, under certain circumstances, they could replicate something similar. They feel like their body mechanics can move and do the same things that these elite level athletes can do. 
And so I think in some fashion that skews the 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 optics of the sport. It skews the successes of the sport. And because of the way in which the sport is marketed, fighters aren't marketed as elite level athletes for the majority of the time, right? They are marketed as people that are accessible. And that's one of the things we absolutely love about MMA. Right. They are marketed, yes, as, as stars, but stars in a different way because of that level of accessibility, because you could just wander down to, let's say, city kickboxing and walk into a session and there's Israel Adesanya and, and Dan Hooker hitting pads. And you he's want- there alongside the novice. They are there alongside the person that no one knows that is just getting started or that is struggling or whatever. There is a ever ever getting in the room with LeBron James when he's shooting hoops. (laughs) Right. Right. Ironically, it's, I mean, it's the, it's part of the thing that sent me to MMA, right. Trying to break in and get an interview with, I remember I was trying to get an interview with quite literally the 25th man on the 25 man roster of the Toronto Blue Jays a utility infielder by the name of John McDonald fan favorite, much beloved nicknamed the prime, the, the minister of defense, very good with the glove. Couldn't hit for a lick. And it was steps upon steps upon steps upon where are you from? Yeah, we'll see. And you just knew it wasn't going to happen. Six months later, I jump on Facebook and send Kenny Florian a message. Hey man, would you like to do an interview? And he goes, yeah, of course. And this is maybe two fights before he's fighting for the lightweight title. You don't have that other, you don't have that other places. And I think it's both the, the positive and the negative of this sport, because as you said, we don't view these athletes as the elite world-class. I also think there's something to be said for how we speak about them because we don't frame them in that same way with that same veneration that we do a LeBron James that we do even it doesn't have to be LeBron. Like I I think you could take it away from the like absolute pantheon level talents and just speak about the second tier, which is still phenomenal. Amazing. The perennial all-stars, the guys that win three, four, five tournaments a year on the PGA tour, things of that nature. Right. We speak about them as such elite talents and in a different class. And as you said, I can't do that. And yet we look at some of these MMA fighters that what I talk about all the time are fourth, fifth, eighth in the division. And we go, yeah, no, it's, it's really hard to be that person. And if you don't understand that, it's going to warp the way that you look at success and what it means to be back to the man we were starting with here, Israel Adesanya, which now has certainly changed because he's lost the middleweight title and he's lost the middleweight title twice in the last three fights. But that also will bring us back to the greater point here when we get back to another middleweight champion in Anderson Silva and some of the members of that generation. I asked you at the start of that as well, what do you think is sort of the the point where that perception shifted? I will I will give you a starting point and see if you agree. To me, it's Conor McGregor becoming double champ and then three more people doing so in quick succession because I think one, 
it became the pursuit. It became the thing everybody talked about, right? We used to joke back in the day, Brandon Vera said, I'm going to win the light heavyweight and heavyweight title before he had any. And it was just the automatic joke. Like, why don't you win one and do something and be successful first? The minute somebody got one after Connor got two, it became, what's the next division they're going to go to? And then when Daniel Cormier did it in a different fashion, but fine. Amanda Nunez did it. Henry Cejudo did it. We sort of, I think, personal opinion, we lost sight of how difficult that actually is and just went, oh, everybody can do this. No, there's a reason it hasn't happened again since. It just might be that in those moments, those four individuals were operating at a different plane of existence. We're at such a high level that we failed to appreciate for one reason or another that now it is skewed things to where if you're not a two-division champion or you're not challenging for a second title, well, you're just not that good. Your thoughts? So I agree with Connor. I think that's where I was going too. I just wanted to to make sure that I wasn't uh, I wasn't missing something out. But I think that the the interesting part of the the Connor discussion is that I don't even think it's as maligned or as intentional as we didn't revere the athletes when it happened. I think it's more that Conor McGregor mania was a real thing. And this was the first time we'd had an athlete impact the sport quite the way he did. And when we think about the way in which everyone sort of got to a point where he told you who he was going to fight and then he made it happen. He told you how the fight was going to go, where the fight was going to happen in terms of its locality. He told you when it was going to happen. He told you exactly what he was going to finish the human with, in what round, in what minute sometimes, and then managed to go out and pull it off. And there is a level of fairy tale that comes along with a situation like that that is very, very, very hard to deny and is very, very hard to downplay, right? And so when you have somebody of the capability of Conor McGregor, when he's already told you from the moment he joins the UFC, these are going to be my actions, and then he goes and completes them. Right. For him to then turn around and say something like, by the way, I'm going to do exactly the same thing I did in Cage Warriors, and I'm going to win two belts at two weight classes, people forgot that it was an insane thing to say because it's Connor saying it. And, but at this point he has done so many things that just sort of defy rationality that well, fuck it. Let's see if he can do it, you know? And then he did. So I think there was the appreciation of Connor doing it. And I think anybody that was around at that time that is of sound mind and body will tell you that was a ridiculous feat of, extreme skill and talent and ability and everybody appreciated it the two that i think kind of skewed it a little bit were daniel cormier because there was always the set of people that said well he didn't really win the light heavyweight title right he won it with john jones in absentia and then heavyweight was heavyweight and he ended up losing it back to steep a and then losing the trilogy bout so there became those like yeah, well, it was just a moment and a lucky punch and whatever, and it got diminished a little bit. And I think the same with Henry Cejudo. TJ Dillashaw came down to flyweight to fight him. He defeated him, continued to hold that title. 
Then he went up after TJ vacated the title because he got suspended for two years and he beat Marlon Marais. And it didn't quite feel like Henry had gone through the gauntlet that even a Connor had, right? Connor went through a good, tough number of challenges to get to featherweight and then went through Eddie Alvarez and went through the Nathan Diaz fights before that. And so for me, I think when DC and Cejudo became two of the four, and those four all happened in relatively quick succession, it's almost like every time you see it, it takes a little bit away from it. And it's not, to me, it feels like it's a little bit incapable to appreciate it at its full extent, because we've just seen it four times in the last year and a half after not seeing it ever. So it feels a little bit like, well, is this just the new thing? Is this is this easier than we thought? Or my argument would be, these were just ridiculously special talents and we needed to appreciate and value that a little more than maybe we did at the time. I think one of the things as well, that's a variable that we don't talk about is timing. hundred percent. Right? Like you've mentioned there, the, the, there is context to all of them. Context right. maybe diminishes some of the potentially diminishes right the or tarnishes maybe the, the the returns on some of those performances but i think when you had just absolute lightning in a bottle in conor mcgregor right. everything he touched turned to gold all of the you know the chad mendez the acl the this the that the next thing still manages to get through it turns it around like even the, even the loss to nathan diaz becomes a wonderful positive moment right and so when you have the timing of somebody like Connor who can spin a story, spin a situation, spin seemingly anything into a positive that sets the bar for others. Right. And you have to think that these are elite level achievers, but there are limitations to even their endeavors or what they believe to be their endeavors are. And so when Connor goes and smashes that boundary and Connor goes and, and breaks the ceiling and, and shows that there is something that is of greater capability. Now you can, uh, you can argue with DC. Sure. Is there a, is there a legitimate legitimacy question to his light heavyweight run? Maybe. Is there a legitimacy question to the, the controlling of the heavyweight title? Maybe. Could there have been tougher matchups for Henry Cejudo? Possibly. Could there have been tougher matchups for Amanda Nunes? No, but I understand what you're saying. Right. At the end of the day, you can only beat the people that are in front of you. You can only beat the people. And DC's argument, I have always stood by of like, John Jones disqualified himself. So if he were here, I wouldn't be in this position, but he's not here. And so I always argued you can't hold it against him. I understand some people choose to. I think we missed the boat on DC really for me is, is the, the one where this changed a lot. And I remember writing back in the day, something along the lines, I believe the title was DC can still be great, but not be the greatest. And it feels like if you're not the greatest, then we don't want to talk about your greatness. Is that a fair, reasonable assessment? Uh, no, but I think that, uh, <laughs> There's certainly a, a greater percentile of leaning towards that statement than there ever has been. Um, because, you know, if even if we think about, um, I can't really talk about NFL or, or, or basketball now, I don't know it well enough, but, but before Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi, there was only ever one greatest player in the world. Only ever. 
Right? At one time, there was one guy and he was the greatest footballer ever, whoever it was. It could have been Zidane, it could have been Pele, it could have been Maradona, it could have been whoever it was at the time. There was one guy, head and shoulders above everyone else. And then the world and the universe managed to summon two of the cunts, right? <laughs> and so now we've got two, and then now the expectation is that there has to be more than one because the level and what's been sold and is what is accepted by the wider populace is that there is more than one. Right. And so when we then look at, if we relate that back to MMA, you look at Alexander Volkanovsky. Alexander Volkanovsky could have, and maybe will do, go down as the greatest featherweight of all time based on his resume, right? And yet he felt the impetus that is his own division was stale, quote unquote. He was sick of the rematches with Max Holloway. He didn't feel like there was enough coming up from underneath him to challenge him, to motivate him. That's insane in Anderson Silva's time, in, in GSP's time. That just doesn't fucking exist. Like your whole sole purpose is to stand in that octagon with your belt at 170, 185, whatever it is, and defeat the guy in front of you. It could be that the skills that you have vastly outweigh the skills that that specific contender had, a la GSP Dan Hardy, right? On paper, that's a fucking whitewash. And Dan Hardy's greatest moment in that fight is what? Defending an armbar. Great. <laughs> right. That's not to diminish Dan Hardy's skill, but we know that GSP is just an ethereal all-time great, right? And so the, the whole impetus then, greatness was longevity. But society doesn't work that way anymore. Greatness is immediacy. Greatness is a TikTok going viral. Greatness is a 25-second clip on Twitter getting a, a, a million impressions, right? It's the quote that you can get, the virality moment. That's what greatness is right now. That's what value has been put into. Why do you think Impa Kasangani's knockout was the UFC's most viewed clip of all time? Because it was fucking seven seconds. And there's some madness in it, and a fella falls over and meets the shadow realm, and everyone's like, oh, "Amazing, shocking moment." We get. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna correct you and say Joaquin I'm Buckley's knockout of Impacasangani. Yeah, thank you. Um, fair play, Joaquin Buckley. That was still sick. But like, there is a, there is a diminishing of value on one side of greatness and an addition to value on another side. Now, maybe we're luddites in saying that we preferred the old way. Maybe the right way is that we should be pushing the sport in a direction where champions can be more than a single champion. Maybe there's some beauty to that. Maybe there's uh, an, an additional evolution necessary in skills for a champion to either go up or go down and distribute their fighting capabilities across multiple weight classes. You can argue that for sure. I think, though, the argument I would have is that there is a level of anxiety and there is a level of vulnerability that a champion must go through in order to get to the elite levels of MMA to even challenge to a title in the first place, right? Then to anticipate and for them to have to go through the arduous anxiety and regimen and everything else to go and compete at another weight class seems like we're asking a little bit too much of our champions to be the norm. If we get another Conor McGregor, if we get, well, it's never going to happen, but you know what I mean? If we get another Henry Cejudo, or we get another Daniel Cormier, or we get another Amanda Nunes, who all in their right are absolutely top of the food chain, insane level fighters. Right. Fine. 
let them right. go and challenge. But you wouldn't be expecting Alexa Grasso to go and compete up a weight class. You're not expecting Dustin Poirier when he wins the uh, when he wins the the interim title to be like, I want the interim title at 170. You're just not expecting these things, right? Right. And so I wonder whether we should be thinking more frivolously about this elite tier achievement and attributing the elite tier accomplishments with a certain level of reverie. And I don't think that we're doing that as well right now. So I want to, I want to just touch on sort of the previous generation before we get to current and future, because for me, as we were talking about this last week, um, I also had a conversation with my editor and my, my mentor, Tom Gervasi about sort of generations and the way we talk about current and form versus former champions and things of that nature. Anderson Silva successfully defended the middleweight title 10 times. There were some absolute monster challengers that had worked their way through the gauntlet to be the number one contender. And there were some daunting tests in there, right? Dan Henderson came over from pride, had him, had his back in the first round. Like it was, it was a, it was a good first round. And then Anderson Silva did Anderson Silva things, beating Rich Franklin, even to start the whole thing and then successfully defending it. Different people in there, right? Vitor Belfort was going to be a test. Chael Sonnen wasn't supposed to be and then was. But there were also Talish Latis and Pat Cote and, to a lesser extent, Damian Maya, who were just the next man up. And he happily went in there and defended his title. And sometimes it wasn't pretty. Sometimes it wasn't as focused and aggressive and whatever as you would want. But he did the damn thing. And we talk all the time about all you can do is beat the person in front of you. And winning is ultimately, we see how difficult it is to continuously win, to continuously get up and successfully defend these titles. He did. George St. Pierre defended the welterweight title. I'm going to get the official number here because I do have it in front of me. I believe nine times once he, once he reclaimed it, successfully defended it nine times. We can talk about the Johnny Hendricks fight, whether it was scored correctly or not. It is what it is. But again, as you already mentioned, fought guys like Dan Hardy, who won two fights to be the next man up and was just the right available challenge. Fought Josh Koscheck after he had previously beaten him before and jabbed the face off of him. There weren't always the absolute most daunting challenge. There were Carlos Condit as interim champ. There was Tiago Alves at UFC 100 when, when the Pitbull was in fine form. There was BJ Penn when Penn wanted to come up at UFC 94. And it was just beat that next guy. We were, I know for me at the time, enthralled by which of these guys is going to defend their title more times. Then a couple of years later, we had Demetrius Johnson come along who defended his flyweight title 11 times, breaking Anderson Silva's record. And yep, there were some folks in there that just got hustled into championship fights that when you look back at it, you're like, man, second title defense was John Moraga. Fourth was Ali Bagatinov. Fifth was Chris Cariasso. Sixth was Kyoji Horiguchi. Way too early for Kyoji Horiguchi, but who gave him a good, tough fight, made him work really hard for that 
last second of the fifth round arm bar in Montreal, which I was there for, which was awesome. There was Tim Elliott. There was Wilson Hayes. There was Ray Borg. There weren't a lot of, you know, same level challengers. John Dodson was supposed to be. Didn't really work out that way. Joseph Benavidez was in the first fight to determine the first flyweight champion. Second fight, he got knocked out in two minutes. It feels like in those moments, when those champions were doing those things, we had an appreciation for what it meant to hold on to those titles a long way. I think we started losing it with DJ. For whatever reason, he wasn't somebody that resonated the same way that Anderson Silva did, that George St. Pierre did. Probably because he's 100 fights at 125 pounds and everybody has this idea of like, I could do that to what you were saying earlier. But it feels like at some point we got out of the like, it means it's so weird to me because we talk about it before every title fight for a long reigning champion who is usually somebody that isn't near the reign of any of these three men that it's difficult to do that. It's hard to get up for these fights every single time. We'll talk about it this week as we reflect on Valentina Shevchenko losing the title to Alexa Grasso ahead of this rematch. Was it that it was just too hard to get up? for Alexa Grasso because you thought you were going to run through her and she wasn't on your level? Who knows? But that, to me, always makes me think back to GSP, Anderson, and DJ, who defended their titles 9, 10, and 11 times consecutively, successfully, and how ridiculous those achievements are. And I do wonder why we don't value that as much and why we've sort of shrunk the number of of fights we saw a lot on the weekend of like once we start talking about these people as goats they lose their belt right Kamaru Usman we started talking about is he is he close to GSP loses the title to Leon Edwards doesn't get it back in the rematch start talking about is he is he maybe the goat loses the title gets it back is he maybe the goat loses the title again I wonder why and I'm always confused as to why We've narrowed that requirement. To me, at middleweight, you got to get to eight before we start talking. And, and it can be less if they are insane challenges. But I want to see that sim, I want to see that level. Like Alexander Volkanovsky is our longest reigning champion right now. Successfully defended the featherweight title five times. Two of those are against Max Holloway. One of them, the third fight, is an absolute wash. He clobbers him. I can't quite put him there yet because he's only beaten four dudes. You go out and beat Ilya Tapuria. You give me one or two more. Then we can talk about your reign versus Jose Aldo's reign because I still have Aldo as number one. But it feels like we've changed. What are your thoughts on why we've condensed that window and shifted the way we perceive these champions to, it feels like we're in a hurry to elevate the current and we undervalue the past. I mean, I don't know because it's in the past, right? It's hard for me to say. I don't know whether at the time, because, you know, remember, people used to call Anderson Silva boring until he wasn't. People used to call GSP boring until he wasn't. Kamar Usman, 
called boring. So it's not as though in the moment that these champions were being so dominant that we were revering in them and giving them all these flowers and props and plaudits because there were enough people. And this is kind of where MMA just fucking sucks as a sport is that people want everything and they want a GSP who goes out and wins and wins dominantly. But the dominance has to be Edson Barbosa versus Terry Etten, right? It has to <laughs> right. be morality. It has to be violence. It has to be brutality. Or it's going to be Damian Maya taking somebody's back and, and finishing them gorgeously, right? Whatever. It can't just be effective dominance. It can't just be tactical dominance. It has to be something more. And I think that pertains to how MMA was marketed, marketed in its very, very first instance. Its very first instance, the embers of MMA are born from violent marketing and then from the ashes of that embers has born this sport phoenix that's now trying to alight over those embers and you know shove them away under the carpet and whatever but still the the violence metric is one that is vastly tangible and important in an MMA viewer's happiness or sort of um sympathy with a fighter's reign now when we look back we can as with all things, hindsight is twenty twenty, and we can see the level of achievement and we can see the level of dedication and the level of strife and the level of just insane ability that these champions had to get to the numbers that they got to. But I go back to the point I made earlier about virality and, and about what society is looking for right now as to why we rush these fighters. We rush these fighters because there just isn't time. There just isn't time. There are so many more things that people can attune their attention to. And I don't even just mean the UFC schedule. It's, well, Bellator, I've got a show on twice a month. You've right. got um, Ryzen, you've got One, you've got the PFL, you've got regional shows like KSW and, Bell and, and Bellator and Cage Warriors. You've got all these shows that are constantly marketing a specific type of angle to you as an MMA fan. And so when you go and you, again, an another element to this, when you go out and you shell your $70 or whatever it is to watch this pay-per-view, you want to see something that you determine to be worth your money. And when an Israel Adesanya, for instance, goes out and fights like he fought against Marvin Vittori or fights like he fought against uh, Jared Cannonier, which in the GSP and Anderson Silver era, you say, oh, well, he's just beating a guy. And okay, they call him boring then. This he gets called boring now, right? It's exactly the same thing. Whereas when we look back in 15 years, we will say that Israel Adesanya had an absolutely incredible run at middleweight. And the, the notions of him being boring will be slightly softened by the fact that he had so many title defenses. But this is where I think the dichotomy one of the dichotomy exists, and this is why we get rushing, and this is why people cottoned on to Alex Bahia so much. It's not just because he knocked Izzy out, it's because he knocks everyone out, right? It's because the ability to go and, and I think this is an interesting point too, and I, I get your thoughts on this. Like, if people see a decision now, they are less inclined to watch the fight than if they see a finish or, or a knockout. 
right? If they see a submission or a knockout, they immediately are drawn to that. Why? Why? Because they don't have to spend 15 minutes of their time watching something that might be an absolutely fucking brilliant fight. Manuel Cape versus Felipe Dos Santos. Brilliant fight. Fantastic 15 minutes of action. But they will absolutely prefer to go and watch Volkov, Ezekiel, Taito Avasa, which don't or, get me wrong. Or Justin Taffa knockout, Austin Lane. Right. Uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, forget Justin Tafford, Austin Lane, horrendous. But uh, Volkov and Taito Avasa was a fun fight. Volkov performed really well. Great performance. But that Manel Cape versus Dos Santos fight was just unbelievable. I'm putting into the Serena May Awards, I'm going to try and shoo in that first round as one of the rounds of the year. Right? Just an unbelievable For sure. round. Wonderful stuff, especially with the context added. And so there is an element with which how can we as as people expect somebody to hold a concentration of a fighter like Israel Adesanya or Alexander Volkanovsky or at the time Kamara Usman defending titles multiple 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 times over a span of months and years when people just want to watch Justin Taffer have a 15 second performance and I don't mean right. that to Justin Taffer but it's more they care so much more about the investment of time in comparison to the context the content or the output the 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 attention span is shifted and we've moved away from i think this is one of the things i talked about a little bit yesterday in talking about the championship fights on television and things of that nature not necessarily appreciating it the same way i said then it's different between the best fighter and the biggest stars that those are two differing. They're not always aligned. And I think now to what you're saying, the viral moment trumps the best performance by the best fighter. So you can have those clinical performances. Sean Strickland's performance on Saturday is a outstanding performance. I will watch that over again, probably multiple times, because I want to continue to watch the things he does exceptionally well and how he frustrates Israel Adesanya. But it's not a thing, as you said, that people are going to rush to because it's 49-46 across the board and they don't want to spend 25 minutes. They maybe watch the end of the first round where Sean Strickland knocks Izzy down. But other than that, I think they get the gist. They have the idea. But to your point, they will watch Tyson Pedro knocking out I can't even remember who he fought at this point. Anton Turkali. Okay. The the pleasure man. Um, and it's it's interesting to me. Yeah, I agree. Man, I missed that. I missed the swipe. It is interesting to me, as we sort of reset here, that one of the things I think that has contributed to this rush of opening up goat conversations rush of wanting to put the current in alongside the established. I think it's a thing that is happening. I don't know if it's happening overseas in North American sports culture. It is the dominant, right? It is the preeminent conversation. As soon as somebody does something well, as soon as somebody wins a champion championship, excuse me, it's where do they fit amongst the all-time greats? Where does this put them in terms of the rest of the icons, right? It's, are they alongside? How many rings do they have in basketball? It's Michael versus Kobe versus LeBron versus who's got rings. And we forget 
previous generations, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar doesn't get mentioned. Bill Russell doesn't get mentioned. Greats like Wilt Chamberlain didn't necessarily have the same rings, but had a massive impact. Don't get mentioned. We have those conversations instantly, right? Patrick Mahomes wins a second Super Bowl last year, wins league MVP, and it's where is he amongst the best? Where does he fit? Is he three? Is he four? Is he five? Can he get to one? He's five years into his career. Like, let's just, let's just hold off. And I look at the current landscape and I think, I think some of it is that we're not doing the next person up that we used to do back in the day. Champions are facing, I don't want to say select fighters, but it's, we're winnowing down every division until we get to a clear number one. And when we get there, when we try to do that, it automatically diminishes everybody else. So Israel Adesanya beating Marvin Vittori and beating Jared Cannonier doesn't carry the same weight as beating, say, Rob Whitaker in the second fight because Rob had beaten those two gentlemen and sort of established himself up until recently as the clear number two. But the weird thing about it then is that we then want to hustle Izzy into the Anderson conversation in comparison, and it just feels off to me. It just feels like we're in too much of a hurry to elevate the present alongside the established generational, like, we know that these people were once in a lifetime. We know that what they accomplished was insane because it hasn't been replicated. No one else has gotten to, and I want to make sure that I include John Jones in this group because I think he is very much part of that that era, that generation, defended the light heavyweight title a number of times before running into all of his different problems along the way, but certainly deserves to be in there, right? He has eight, GSP has nine, Anderson has 10, DJ has 11. That to me is the quartet that we should be talking about. And yet we want to try to hustle people in that have four, that have five. I don't think many people have gotten to six. And so I'm always curious as to why that is, even when we look at a lot of these title fights and think the challenges aren't necessarily the best challenge or the highest level challenge that these athletes can face. I think this is one of the reasons why I really don't give a fuck about the GOAT conversation. And I think it's benign. Same. Same. If we saw... Heard, chef. We saw... I see. We saw what happened with Israel Adesanya and, and Anderson Silva when they fought, right? Now, eras, timing, context, all of these things, obviously. But I am confident that most of the fighters we are talking about the ethereal levels, the John Jones, the Anderson Silvers, the DJs, the GSPs. In 20 years, if prime GSP for prime whoever it is in 20 years, GSP gets smoked handy. <laughs> handy. It is not close, lads. Because, and this is why I think that the <laughs> the, the GOAT conversation and the, the eights and the this, the, the guys saw at that time were elite in a sport that had only existed less years than I have been alive right now. <laughs> and so they took a 
an accelerating sport and they accelerated it further. Yes, they were special human beings. Do not take what I'm saying for granted. They took the sport to a new plane, a new level, a new era. However, they were levels of fighters in a modernity, in an era, in a dynasty of MMA that does not exist anymore. And so I would argue that winning four title defenses in a row is probably just as hard, if not harder, than DJ having 11. And so why are we having this conversation about numbers and stats and figures, right? And I know that we're not having them. I'm just saying to the argument itself, DJ now, if you drop him in that 125-pound fucking shark tank, is going to have a way tougher time than he had fighting some of the guys in which he fought, right? right? And so even to the argument right now, like the the goat thing and and cross of that right if you took brandon royville who is not the champion but is a top contender at flyweight and stuck him in at the inception of flyweight when it was dj versus ian mccall and joe b versus yashihiro urashitani in the initial tournament brandon royville runs parallel with those dudes and maybe smokes them because everything has just evolved it's the same reason that whenever there's conversations about goats and eras and people do the like, if you dropped LeBron James in 1960, he would have scored. Right. It's because everything has changed from 1960 to when he hit the basketball court in Akron with the idea of I'm going to be the greatest of all time. Everything was there for him in different ways than it was for those previous generations. And to compare across is just, it's unfair to both sides. And so I just, I pay no mind to the conversation because we're in a situation where, you know, do, and that, is that me trying to make an argument for Israel Adesanya being the GOAT? Fuck no, absolutely not. Like, absolutely not. Because I just don't think that there is ever going to be one. There will be a time in MMA in 50 to 100 years where there is tiny incremental changes in skills and there are tiny incremental movements in tactical proficiency and ideas and these sorts of things. Very similar to how there is now in, in football or there is in NFL or there is in basketball. There is very rarely something that you see now happen in an NFL game, a play or a tactical switch or a movement of the human body that you've never seen before. Very rare. Very, very, very rare. Exactly the same in, in real football or in basketball, right? It just doesn't happen very often. There are certain athletes because the human form is still gathering speed in its terms of its athletic ability. And so there are things, there are feats of athleticism that we have seen and can see and will see that will astound us and will continue to astound us. But the nature and the, attribu the attribution of the game is now so well refined in some other sports that you don't see something just absolutely insane, brand new. There are there are cyclic patterns that bring certain styles and, and waves back in and they add certain flavors and certain seasonings as they go through the proliferation of the sport, but they're all reinvented, right? 
And so, yes, when MMA dies down, because right now it's in the Big Bang era, right? And things are, are fucking smashing into each other and all sorts of chaos is going on. There will be a cooling period. And when the universe of MMA settles in to the gravitational realms that it's going to be in for the millennia that it exists in, we will start to see and we can then start to have conversations about the real true pioneers of the sport. Because I can guarantee you in 50 to 100 years, Demetrius Johnson, as much as we revere him now, is going to look like absolute fucking garbage. He is going to look like when we look at soccer players in the 1950s and these fellas are just bumbling along the field, falling over their own ankles and then just out getting the ball into the net. And they're like, that guy's the best ever. <laughs> right. Right. It's I mean, it's interesting because we see it across every sport, as you just mentioned. And I think the sharpest minds are the ones that go that that point out exactly what you pointed out and say exactly what you said there of like, listen, in a bunch of years, we're going to see a change and we're going to think it's not. How is that guy considered the greatest? I think about it with hockey present day. Right. You go back and watch some of those early seasons of Wayne Gretzky absolutely lighten people absolutely lighten people up and it's like right but some of these lads were were smoking two packs a day and drinking a case of beer in the locker room after every game and we're going to call him the absolute best just cuz he wasn't and was a level of it's what happens and so to me as we maybe spin it forward a little bit how do we measure and value the greatness that is before us now and appreciate it more going forward. Cause I do think for me, and I make this point all the time and I probably sound like an old crank shaking my fist at a cloud. I think we miss appreciating some of the greatness in the moment because we're always trying to quantify it and figure out where it fits in the, in the history of things instead of just going, Man, this was great. This was this was really fun. This is really special. Which was kind of the point of yesterday's podcast talking about listen, Saturday we get the 25th fight in UFC history, 25th title fight in UFC history to be not on a pay-per-view. These things are special. It's been a number of years since we've had one. Let's appreciate this because it doesn't come along often. How do we do that more where we're not just always trying to put it into what more can they do? And where do they fit against the others? Because I think there are some fighters, some athletes, some talents right now that don't quite get their due. And we want more of them in order to say this person is great. Uh, I don't think we can. Is the honest answer. Um, I just think you have to allow people to use the sport for what they want. And um, whilst at a media level, we have an influence on these things because we can choose not to partake in certain conversations or we can, you know, try to affluently explain why certain conversations are redundant or not worth the time. Um, people watch fights or follow fights for entertainment and how they derive entertainment is personal to them. And so it's very, very hard for us as media or for the larger MMA community to turn somebody's opinion if they don't want it to be turned, 
right? And I think for the vast majority of people, they are comfortable with how they consume MMA. They are comfortable with the conversations they have. It gives them something to discuss with work colleagues or people at the, the bar or the pub or the water cooler or whatever. And so it proliferates an important sort of staple of their lives. And I think that as we move forward generationally, we can do our best to put cornerstones in the sand that say, this is how we like to appreciate fighters. This is how we like to be present in the moment when we're talking about fighters. But that is ultimately down to two people larger than us. And that is the promotions promoting the fighters. Um, they set the tone for how fighters are viewed. Media, frankly, have a, a spec in terms of the influence in comparison to how the promotions actually market their fighters and how the promotions determine the way in which fans and the communities of fans inter interpret those fighters. And the second is the fans themselves. And if they choose to want to blindly follow a certain type of fighter, a certain style, a certain division, a certain promotion, then there is absolutely nothing, in my opinion, that you can do to begin to sway them of that change. It's a personal journey and it's a use of their personal time. Um, but these things happen in MMA. So what you're telling me yet again for the, I don't know, 497th time in our friendship and relationship is that I should stop banging my head into the wall and trying to change everybody. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, I think, um, at the end of the day that, that we consume MMA individually, whether that's from a media perspective and it's your profession, but there is something in, I think there's, there are few and far between members of the media that consume MMA that don't actually like it in some fashion or don't gain some entertainment value from it. Maybe they prefer the fighters' personalities to the actual fighting. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe they prefer the whole fanfare of the week and the this and the that. But there is some form of entertainment that is derived from MMA. And that in and of itself is sort of the crux of the problem, right? Nobody is pulling in one singular direction. I don't even think you can get a singular pull inside a media room, let alone in terms of the overall, uh, the overall sort of online global pull of right. media. And so just fucking use MMA for whatever you want to use it for. Try and be as respectful as possible and the rest will just happen naturally. Enjoy it the way you choose to enjoy it. Get into the GOAT debates if you want to. Avoid them at all costs if that is what you please. Celebrate who you want to celebrate. Appreciate who you want to appreciate. Occasionally listen to old cranks like me that want to tell you better ways to do it, right ways to do it the way that I, I prefer to do it. I'm trying very hard not to do the right way versus wrong way. Cause as you just said, everybody's way is everybody's way. And it is what it is. I do think we miss out on some of the greatness. I think it's, it's weird for me, as we've talked about for my personal journey, for my personal position on this, I think it's weird the way we rush to want to crown people, the way we fail to appreciate some of the greatness that we see on a week to week month-to-month, year-to-year basis. But it is what it is. And as you always say, to quote the great Gus Johnson, these things happen in MMA. Before I let you get out of here, I would be remiss to not give you the floor to remind people where they can find you and what's coming on tap from Harry Powell and the fine folks at Severe MMA. Sure. Um, I mean, it's a, it, it's a pretty well- well-oiled wheel at the moment at Sevilla. Um, 
you can you can find a host of stuff over there if you are looking for regional irish mma coverage there is the old triangle with ian o'neill you can find a speaker's corner between me and myself uh me and myself definitely me and myself but myself and the general sean sheehan uh we we have conversations based on everything that happens outside of the cage but things that pertain to fighting and the sport there is obviously the big podcast with with Sean and Graham. There is an article that I write every Monday called The Severe Spotlight. And that is essentially me just chatting shit about a fighter that I liked that weekend. And then there is a bit of the preview show where we try and break down cards that are coming up in the, the upcoming Saturday week. So, um, yeah, you can find me on all of the, the, the social media platforms. Spencer's already given my 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 thing out and uh yeah as always it's been a pleasure I've, uh, really you left out the balance breakdown yourself and ian o'neill breaking down ah uh, sure yeah that one as well the event as well going through dissecting discussing having conversations about each passing event i like that the the big show is just called the big show i know it is officially the severe mma podcast but i like when shows just become the big show that's, that's right that's the veneration that it deserves sean and graham been doing it for 400 some odd episodes now 500 coming up to 340 years they've been doing yes yes well listen as i said off the top this has been way too long this has been wonderful to do again for harry powell i am e spencer kite this has been the keyboard kimura podcast presented by the fine folks at one bone follow them at onebonebrand.com at onebonebrand on twitter and instagram follow me at spencer kite we love you we appreciate you we will see you again next week Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Know that you're loved. Peace out.